Welcome to The Journey, a jiu-jitsu podcast by Gold BJJ. I'm Cole, one of the owners of Gold BJJ, and today I have Dan Martin with me. Dan came on my radar when he tagged us in one of his Instagram competition reels. He's in bottom side control, hits a beautiful sweep, and when he lands on top, you notice he only has one leg. He goes on to have a very intense, exciting match that he finishes with a north-south choke from top side control, and I knew just from watching the energy in this match that I had to learn more about Dan's story. So let's hop right in with Dan telling us about how he lost his leg, found jiu-jitsu, and what it did for his life. Yeah, so just uh, a couple weeks ago, February 7th, I hit the nine-year mark, so 2014. Um, My father was a big snowmobiler, friends of the family, big snowmobilers. So uh, they go up to northern Maine and do a big snowmobiling trip, and they go every uh, year for like a big, long weekend. Well, I get on the snowmobile, it's about... uh, the snowmobile trip itself is from our buddy's cabin in Maine, 12 hours on the sled, then uh, take a break with there's a hotel up north, get to ride those northern trails the next day because it's a 12-hour ride on a snowmobile, and then that Sunday, make your way back home. Uh, we were just about at the hotel, pretty close. Uh, like I said, I wasn't a big snowmobiler. Honestly, hadn't been on a snowmobile trip in years, And uh, but the day went good. Trail went left. I didn't see it. It was nighttime. It was dark. Um, I don't know if I maybe started to doze off driving the sled or if it, you know, I just didn't see it, whatever it may be. I'm going off the trail and, uh, you know, there's a tree in front of me and I'm in deep powder. I'm able to kind of veer off out of the way of the tree, but uh, I find myself leaning off of the sled where I'm about to hit the tree head on. So, you know, split second decision. I was like, not my head. So I tried to dive out of the way and, uh, my leg lap wrapped the tree. And, uh, so I've broken bones before I grew up playing football and stuff like that. And so I know the feeling of a broken bone, you get kind of that pit in your stomach. So right away, I, uh, I kind of knew what was going on, but I just thought it was a broken bone. So I'm kind of in a little icy ditch and, uh, kind of start yelling for help. Luckily my friend Katie is coming behind me. And she happened to see the just the tracks going off into the woods. And uh, she didn't see me crash or anything, but she stopped. Then eventually saw my snowmobile sitting in the woods. I heard her sled kick off and I hear, you know, Dan. And I finally calmed down for a second, took a breath. There was about 20 of us on this trip. So eventually people started to collect here above this little icy ditch I was in. And I couldn't get myself out of it. My right leg was junk. And... Uh, Katie, even the icy ditch we were in, she had to walk about 20 yards into the woods to get to where it flattened out to come back up being able-bodied. So I'm sitting there a little uh, banged up. They get my sled out of the woods, try to turn it on. It doesn't turn on. They kick the front of it, turn it over. It starts up like new. You would never know it was in an accident. Throw a rope down to me in the, uh, in the ditch and a few of the guys grabbed onto it. I kicked along with my good leg as they pulled me out. And, uh, and then I just kept telling everybody I had a, a Charlie horse because <laughs> we're a ways away from any civilization, but I know we're close. And I, like I said, I thought it was a broken bone. That's all I was thinking. So uh, I had them help me get help me get on the sled. And I just remember, like, if you're familiar with snowmobiles at all, there's runners along the side. And uh, I go to put my right leg on it and the foot's just pointed out to the right. So I was like, hey, can somebody give me a hand? <laughs> they fixed that. And uh, everybody started going. Two of my buddies or three of my buddies drove 
full speed. They went out in front because they could tell I was hurting. And uh, we made it about five miles and we got to a uh, snowmobile dealer. Uh, they're right along the trails all the time up in Maine. So you can pull in with a vehicle or pull in with your snowmobile. So uh, we stopped. My friends had already gotten there and they're like, hey, this guy said he can give you a ride to the hospital in his truck. And I go, uh, yeah, I can't. I can't do the truck right now. Just call an ambulance. There's no way I can get myself in it. So to make a, a long story short from that point on, ambulance shows up. Uh, they get me in the ambulance. We are in Fort Kent, Maine. If anybody knows Fort Kent, Maine, it is the smallest town you can find. There's not a lot there. The hospital is the size, smaller than majority of primary care offices. And they have two surgeons on. They have a general trauma surgeon that's going to deal with like your appendicitis. And they have an orthopedic surgeon who fixes Johnny's arm when he falls out of the apple tree. And that's really... The only two people are there and one of them's on at one time. So they do the call out, get everybody in. I'm on the hospital table. Now I keep feeling, uh, I'm losing feeling of my foot. And that was like my big thing. So as the doctors are working and all that, and like I said, this is such a small hospital. The doctors are prepping me for surgery. The nurses are right next to me on the phone with my parents. Now they're giving my parents the full rundown. I have no idea the severity of it. What it is, when my femur broke, it severed my femoral artery. So when your femoral artery severs, if it cuts all the way through, it then will start, uh, it'll spasm and it's like a life-saving method. The artery will actually spasm and stop you from bleeding out. Uh, mine cut three quarters of the way through. So with that, I just was bleeding out internally. And so they told my folks that, hey, start heading up here and, uh, you know, we don't know what we're going to have to do. We don't have the technology or the supplies to make the make the fix here. So, and and then the big thing was they not only couldn't make the, the fix in the surgery, they didn't have the blood supply there to keep me alive. So they called a life flight helicopter and they were trying to get me down to Bangor, Maine, talk to my folks and, uh, yep, we'll do, uh, you know, we can do what we can but we can't promise anything. And they're like, you got to do something, you know? So they made a makeshift fix, get me on the helicopter, get me to Bangor, call my folks. Once I'm on my way to Bangor, tell them, meet them there. And actually when my parents showed up at the hospital, luckily my mother's an ICU nurse. So nothing. And my father used to be an EMT. So neither of it really shook them. They were, they were rocks through this whole thing. But, uh, so when I was getting rolled into the hospital, that's right when they had shown up and they saw a big chaos, people pressing down on somebody on a gurney, all this. It was me, the makeshift surgery they had done, let go. And I started bleeding out again. So they hurried up, got me in. So that was a Friday night that this accident happened. Um, basically, I was in an induced coma from Friday to Monday. And it started out when they first got me to the hospital, not sure if I was going to survive and kind of every hour on the hour, my family and stuff were getting different messages. Oh, we think we're going to be able to save the whole leg. Oh, we're not sure if he's going to make it. Oh, his kidneys are going into failure. Um, and so it was back and forth. And on that Sunday, uh, I know they were bringing me into surgery and kind of the communications were, we're either going to be able to save the whole leg or this is the beginning of the end essentially. And, uh, my parents were sitting in a waiting room, three surgeons are coming down to them. So they thought it's the beginning of the end if all three doctors are coming down. But 
luckily, and now I realize how blessed, you know, but it was just, hey, we had to amputate above the knee. So leg was amputated above the knee. I, uh, I came to, they brought me out of the induced coma that next Monday, the next day. And I remember I was coming off the drugs. I had been on a ventilator, like I said, induced coma the whole nine. And uh, when I was coming off the drugs, uh, my parents and family were talking to me, trying to kind of see where I was at until I was a little aware of what's going on. And they finally go, all right, Dan, we got to talk to you about the leg. Now at this point, you know, I'm still thinking I just broke my leg and uh, they like, we got to talk to you about the leg. I go, all right, what is it? And they go, what do you think it is trying to gauge where I was at? And I just go, we got to take it. Let's just do it. And uh, they go, it's already gone. So uh, can I swear on this? <laughs> I, my, first response, <laughs> my first response was, fuck, that's it. And then uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. So my first three questions were, does my girlfriend know? Can I still work? And uh, do my private still work? And uh, I, got a, I got a yes to all three questions. And so then it was just... Uh, it was a battle from there. And from there, it was about a month in the hospital. And uh, we eventually went down to Boston at Spalding Rehab Hospital. I was there for a few weeks, which was an incredible experience. That's after the 2013 marathon bombing in uh, Boston. That hospital had just opened its doors. And that was their grand opening to the world was that catastrophe. And they're the best in the business. So as far as me falling into a good spot, you know, I didn't die. I got to go to one of the top rehab hospitals in the country and, you know, and I benefited greatly from it. So yeah. And after that, it was, uh, I was working as an electric lineman at the time. So it was a seven month process, but I got my back myself back working full time in seven months in the bucket truck doing physical labor. And yeah, man, that's the, uh, sorry, so long, but that's the story. Oh, that's a wild story. You talk about it so nonchalantly, like in in the in the moment, was it just excruciating pain, or is it like you couldn't feel the foot, and so it was more of you were in shock? Or I, so I also I have a high pain tolerance, and this isn't like to toot my own horn. It's gotten me in more trouble now in my later years than ever before. But like to put in perspective, my sophomore year of high school, fractured five vertebrae in my back. My third game of the season, I played eight games with it, just telling myself. It was a muscle issue and I'd be fine. But at any given point, I could be running and my whole right side would just give out, you know? So I have a high pain tolerance. So like I said, I knew it was broken, but all I was thinking was it's a broken leg and it's painful, you know? And uh, we're talking mm -hmm. jujitsu, you know, what are most cross faces, but, you know, just uncomfortable and, you know, you got a lapel across your chin or whatever. And it, there's so many times that your hand does the float that you're like, oh, I'm going to do that tap. And you're like, no, it's just, it's all it is, is pain. It's not even risking injury. It's just nuisance more than anything. So kind of in my, my headspace was I got a broken bone. I got 20 people here that are all going on a vacation. I don't want to ruin things for them. Let's, let's get moving because whether I get myself on this snowmobile or we decide to start calling people now and telling them I have a broken leg, we're still stuck in the woods right now. We got to get out of the woods. So you know, yeah. and that, that's, that really was my only mindset. And it's kind of, it's, like I said, it's gotten me in more trouble in my later life because I have, you know, uh, lingering injuries from football and jujitsu and everything like that, that I ignored for so long. But in some sense, you know, 
it's what got me through that whole situation was able to keep, you know, bouncing back. Cause you know, I talk about it nonchalantly. There was a lot of low moments in there and days, you know, I think I handled it decent, but there's a lot of days that I wasn't so decent, you know? So what was that seven months of rehab like? So really it was, uh, it got quicker than that. So right when my, you know, and I was ignorant to the whole thing, kind of being an amputee and what it involved. So luckily I had a lot of time in the hospital and, uh, the internet's a beautiful place if you use it the right way. And there was resources everywhere. So I just started reading everything I could and pretty early on came to the realization, uh, I'm not going to be put in a prosthesis right away. That's just not how it goes. I had, it wasn't until about three days after I woke up from the induced coma that they actually closed up the entire wound on my leg because there was so much dead tissue and everything in there. I went in for like, uh, you know, seven more surgeries after coming out and that was just to go in and clean up dead muscle. But, uh, so I came to that realization. So physical therapy early on, it was, uh, you know, just getting your body moving right. A lot of working on uh, finding a new center of balance. You don't realize how much just not having that leg there changes everything. But so you have to kind of recalculate. So I just remember one of the biggest struggles during my rehab, uh, and it doesn't seem hard. I had to stand on my one good leg with my eyes closed for 30 seconds. And that in order to do that, that was so I could get approved to get a higher quality leg. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, ticker tape nonsense you kind of got to go through. But like, I just remember like looking at that. And like I said, I was an athlete growing up, everything like that. And I was like, why is standing on one leg for 30 seconds so hard? But we eventually got there and uh, eventually I was able to get fitted for the prosthesis. I want to say that was around May or June accident was in February. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, so then from that point, it was learning to walk and I resort back to football again because it's helped me so much in my life. But I was a coach after I played and film was everything. You know, you hear everybody talk about watch film, watch film. All I did was watch videos of people walking with prosthesis. I knew uh, there's a few different types. The knee is the big thing. If you're an uh, above knee amputee, they have to replicate one of the most, you know, uh, complicated joints in your body, the knee, they have to try and replicate that in a mechanical fashion. So there's a few different companies that do knees. I was watching videos on all of them. How do they walk? What's the, uh, the trigger that fires it. So that way, once I got into the leg, it went a lot quicker. And the only thing that slowed me down is you're now strapping a piece of carbon fiber to your leg every day. So your leg has to get used to it itself. Otherwise, I would have been trying to walk 25 miles a day early on, but the leg will get beat up and sore and whatnot. So it was a, it was a process. So it was physical therapy twice a week, doing the workouts and stuff at home. And then I had to keep my mental side straight as well. And luckily the company I was working for at the time uh, was great. Littleton electric light department. And they uh, worked with me. They were actually at the hospital when I was in an induced coma and they had to get back to work from Monday. So they weren't there when I woke up, but they came up to see me. And so just great, great people, but they worked with me. So I started going in a couple of days a week doing just clerical work in the office. And then as I got better on my leg, then I was like, okay, I'm going to come in five days a week, 
I'll do three days in the office and then I'll do two short days on the truck trying to do physical labor. And that was always my driving thing was I wanted to get back to working. I didn't want to be a burden on family or society or anything like that. And, you know, I almost felt like guilty for uh, taking disability and things that were there because I needed them. I was incapacitated, but it was like, uh, that was the driving force was to get back to work. So it was detrimental and helpful because it drove me to stick with my workouts, stick on the rehab, doing all those things, learn to walk again, and not only learn to walk, but learn to walk and, you know, be able to do physical labor. And uh, luckily I got to that point and it just came from that slowly building up a couple days on the truck. And then, yeah, like I said, within seven months, I was back full-time physical labor, 40 plus hours a week. And I say detrimental because now kind of push through the pain, whatnot. I should have used all those benefits that were awarded to me with my injury, the disability and time to really make sure I rehabbed appropriately and learned to walk with the perfect form and the, these things. But nine years later, I'm still learning to be an amputee. So that just comes with the territory. But yeah, the rehab itself, the rehab wasn't as intensive as you think. It's kind of what you put into it because the act of walking is a, is a real simple thing walking with a prosthesis obviously a bit more difficult and the adage coming from most uh prosthetists and stuff like that is uh one step for somebody with two legs is the same energy exertion as or sorry one step for someone with one leg is the same energy exertion as you doing three steps so that just is kind of the gauge but in the grand scheme of things it's walking so if you're able to push yourself and you're not afraid of failures and you know the uh the trials that come with it and that was painful days days that i pushed it too far and got a sore on my leg had to take it off um days where i didn't feel like just going out and doing the simple thing of walking days that i didn't want to get off the couch there was all of that so as as much as like it might feel like or you know even myself personally i was like you know trying to walk with one leg must be so hard. It's so much less physical and it's 99% mental. Yeah. It's interesting. As it sounds like you're such an active person, an athlete before the accident, that at least you were able to channel that into the process of rehab and learning how to walk again. You discovered jujitsu after the accident, right? Yeah. And so jujitsu, so I, I wrestled for one year growing up and then I lived down in Georgia for a little bit when we moved back, our school didn't have wrestling. So that was all gone. So, you know, as I feel like half the jujitsu community says, you know, I was a big UFC fan and watching UFC all the time. And I, uh, I always got bothered by football fans that didn't know what they were talking about. So I was like, I can't just be this guy that's sitting on the couch watching all these fights and then, you know, know nothing about it. So I got to get into it, but it was, it was a much, it was a long process to get to that point. I was active. I got with it and that's what got me to get back to work, everything like that. Well, once I reached that goal, I just kind of stopped everything and it was just work and that was it. And so I got completely out of shape, fat, just, it was, it was a, and I was unhealthy. I was drinking all the time, doing all these sorts of things. 
So then uh, in the adaptive community, CrossFit's such a major entity, I started doing CrossFit. And so then that was the, you know, the driver and that motivated me for a while. And actually I was competing on a national world stage. I ended up getting ranked. Uh, I was ranked fourth in the world for lower limb disabilities in CrossFit. And then I had a sore on my leg that I kept trying to work through, work through, work through. Got to a point that I couldn't anymore. Went to the doctors, had a staph infection, was put on crutches for six months. And we go just back to where I was when I had met my initial goal of learning to walk. I just stopped all of it. And out of shape, fat, all the same tendencies that came before it came again. And then I actually eventually picked up sled hockey, which if you're unfamiliar with sled hockey, adaptive hockey, you sit in sleds. If, if your lower half doesn't work, go play sled hockey, basically. And, uh, and it was a great experience and I got a little bit of that athletic drive again, but I work a crazy work schedule. I rotate between days and nights. And so it just wasn't working out making team practices, everything like that. And I had to call it quits. So maybe a year prior to, uh, trying sled hockey, I went and tried jujitsu one month free trial, like every gym has and enjoyed it, but I was at my most out of shape. I wasn't mentally there. I wasn't doing the things I needed to, to be good enough to get through an hour and a half class. So after a, a month, I was like, you know what? I made every excuse. I told myself, you know, all oh, my schedule is too hard to make it work. Their schedule doesn't match with mine, blah, blah, blah. But it just came down to, I was, I didn't like going in there, getting beat up nonstop. And then on top of it, just being so dog tired, I couldn't even try and fight back, you know? So it wasn't until just a, it would be a year and a half. I've only been really training jujitsu, about a year and a half, maybe a little more. And then I was like, you know what? This is something I'm passionate about it. I'm watching the stuff all the time. Let's do it. And it was like that mindset. I went into it, not as a, you know, oh, this is something I'd be interested in. I went in with true passion from the get-go. This is something I want to do. And right away it, it took, and I still had those same trials and tribulations I had on the first month trial of being dog tired, throwing up in the middle of a rolling session, you know, uh, not wanting to go, the body hurting, all of those things. But it was, I, I truly made the decision for myself this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to go after. And really after that first month, I, I say all the time, it became the most addicting thing to me since I played football, you know, from the time I was five years old till I was 23 years old. All I did was football. If I wasn't playing it, I was getting ready for it. I was coaching it. It was football. And to finally find something that created that same drive and same, uh, you know, I say addicting because the days that I go and this morning for one, get my ass kicked for lack of better words, those are as great of days as the good ones. And it reminds me of football. The worst football practices are the ones that you and your old buddies talk about. Remember that day we did a million sprints, whatever it is. And oh, remember that day the black belt at class put me in two twisters back to back and I had no idea what was happening. It's those things. It, it, when you're passionate about something, the failures become memories as well and not poor memories, not even memories you have to 
uh, build off of just memories in the in the journey, you know? Sure. I mean, that's incredible. I, I guess <clears throat> for anybody going into their first jiu-jitsu class, just walking into the gym that first time is so intimidating. And I got to imagine that walking in as an amputee is on a whole nother level. What, what was that like? Yeah, you know, it certainly was uh, nerve wracking and still to this day, like I, uh, I have anxiety, depression, you know, those are clinical things, but just like anybody else has anxiety, it's showing up there. And then for me, if we're working on triangles that day, I'm not throwing up triangles and I can't, or if we're working on a reverse De La Hiva setup, I can't be a good training partner for somebody because I can't stand up and give them that look they need to. So a lot of my anxiety just came from like, I want to just be one of the class, but I have to make these special changes. The nice thing is, is everybody at my gym, Worcester MMA, they, you know, from the jump, it wasn't anything like it. Coach would demonstrate triangle, move, whatever. The minute we break, he would already be telling somebody, hey, we're going to work with two groups of three today. That way, every training partner has somebody that can stand up. And then once we break, he comes over to my group. Hey, Dan, work on this today instead. And, and so it was just that. And it was just drilling. And once I got into it, all the guys are in the same boat. You know, some someone's older, someone's this. There's all those anxieties that weigh on everybody going in there. It's just a matter of a swallowing it and do it. And I know that's such a it's easier said than done swallowing it, but like, it really is what it is. I kind of use like the, the 10 minute thing. It's like, give yourself 10 minutes to feel bad about it, feel anxious, all that, and then just do it because in the great, you're never going to regret the doing, you know, even if it's a negative outcome, you now have all certainty in that negative outcome. You just gotta, you know, bite the bullet. Yeah, absolutely. We have um, an above-the-knee amputee who is a Navy SEAL that uh, trains at our gym occasionally. And he's white belt, um, you know, so he's coming in at like a skill disadvantage and lose without uh, without one of his legs. And just he, he, biggest smile on his face the whole time. Goes so hard in like a great way. You know, he's like really trying to push it. Um, and I think it just really amps everybody else up to see, man, this guy is not letting losing a leg get to him. And yeah, my ribs bugging me and my fingers hurt, but it makes it like impossible to complain about, you know, anything going on in my life when you, you see somebody um, climbing back from disadvantage like that with such a strong attitude on their face. Yeah. And it's kind of like anything in life, you know, have fun with the, the disadvantage. It's okay to make fun of yourself and make fun of the situation. When coach shows a triangle move in our morning class, we're very tight in our morning class. Uh, our coach will show a triangle move and then I'll look at everyone in class and be like, I showed them all of that. You know what I mean? Obviously, I've never thrown a triangle in my entire life, but you got to have fun with it. When I'm stuck on bottom and somebody goes to mount, I can quickly clear to half guard because I have a whole lot less leg to clear and I can hook back in and start playing half guard. So if I whisper in your ear, cheat code as I do that, like let's have some fun with this thing. It's that's what we're doing it for. There's so many added benefits, but like, you know, we're doing it to get better at something, better ourselves, feel more comfortable on our skin. All those things come with it. You just have to, like you said, go at it with a smile. And even I feel like if you're trying to be 
the most competitive, uh, you know, jujitsu player in the world and go on to the ADCCs of the world. Like if you think Tom Brady doesn't enjoy his training and isn't joking around with the guy that makes him his avocado smoothie, you're crazy, you know, because you don't get through doing that without it. You have to find the, uh, the enjoyment in the suck for lack of better words. For sure. Uh, speaking of the competitiveness, how has competition played a role in your jiu-jitsu journey? So yeah, jujitsu competitions opened up my eyes to everything. I've only got uh, three under my belt right now, but uh, I remember the first one, I had a private lesson beforehand to really gear up, punch up some things and talking to my coach. And he's like, you're going to be ready for, you know, it's, it's a nerve wracking thing. And I'm like, I've played in state championship football games. I'll be good. Like, I'm not worried about it. You get out there and you know, as much as anyone it's, it's an adrenaline dump like you've never felt before. And then on top of it, you get so accustomed to showing up at your gym with your disadvantage and all of the same faces that it's not a new thing that when I came into this new environment, rolling at an, a different place for the first time in my life, you know, and then it's in competition as well. And then I'm looking around and it started to sink in and I felt those same first month trial anxieties and jitters and you know oh I, i'm not ready to do this and then at the end of that first competition i couldn't open my hands up the adrenaline dump was just so much it was so crazy and it made me go back and really look at what i was doing as far as my training nutrition and of course i'm still not where i want to be but it made me look at what i'm doing and i feel my just competing itself has made me uh more open to my disability because the jujitsu community as a whole, for the most part, my experience is a very open community. And so the same openness that my gym has for the amputee, for the overweight guy who can't get into rolling it for whoever it may be, the community as a whole has that same openness and wants to tell you, this is awesome, man. This is great. And so that was big. It got me over that hurdle and it opened my eyes up to just on a training aspect, how lacking my cardio was, how much of an adrenaline dump was. And then also how I didn't have direction in what I wanted to get done. You know, so I went into training, we work on a class move, things like that. Then we get into our live roles and I'm trying to win or survive, you know, depending on who I'm with rather than hey, you work this deep half game all the time. Why not work on your deep half today, constantly get there and try and work through these things and not just go like a crazy man, you know? So from that competition, not only, you know, helped me kind of even out as far as uh, just jujitsu practitioner goes, it also helped me uh, plan out how I go about my training. And I feel like I've made further advances with that since I competed. For sure. That makes sense. So like logistically in a jiu-jitsu competition, of course, you're not wearing a prosthetic. What's your game plan going into the match? <laughs> so the last one, the one that you guys got tagged in, that was a tap cancer out tournament. If you guys haven't done a tap cancer, do it. They're awesome. Great fundraiser, great organization, highly recommend. But, uh, so when I did that one, my coach asked me that same question. What's your game plan going in? And, you know, jujitsu tournaments, you have to start on your feet. 
you can't go to your butt and gi can't go to your butt until you have contact. So my big plan was I'm going to get a sleeve, fall down, throw my lasso in, and then we work from there. That was my big plan. That all went out the window <laughs> immediately, you know? And uh, from that point, once, because the pressure is so much more, you don't have the space, you feel like you normally do things like that. Pretty quickly, I was in bottom side control, which is kind of <laughs> where some people's home base is close guard. Mine's bottom side control, just because it's easy for folks to get there. But uh, basically from there, it was okay. I'm stuck in this spot. <laughs> Let's go with the things you know. So I went to my deep half game from there and just started playing until I could get to my top game. Once I get to my top game, that's essentially where my my disadvantage that is on bottom can become an advantage. <clears throat> because if I'm passing to your left, once I clear my left leg, you have nothing to catch on to and I'm going to be inside control in those things. And so... It was really about calming down and my first few competitions, you know, got me ready for that and that accept the bad positions. You know, if you get to the bad position, it's three points. You already got there. You freaking out and losing your head isn't going to make that up. So slow down for a second. Think about your where you're going and execute you know and so that kind of just made me calm down stay a little more fluid and uh in that last one i got to a north south choke and i had been working north south chokes for a couple weeks and one of my coaches jesse really really helped me out and like taught me a tip and so i won my one match i won won it by sub won it with that north south choke so it wasn't until days later when i was upset about my two losses that I came to the realization, hey, those those uh, that mindset you took to your training of you've been working on this, try and work to this. I did all of those things. I used my strength. I went from deep half to a sweep. I got to side control and used the north south. So it was like it was just a culmination of all of these things, and it was almost a year to the day of me starting jujitsu that that tournament was. So it was like, it was just a big culmination that, you know, it doesn't have to be these massive gains, but these small things you're doing are, you know, making a, making a change, you know? Yeah. Andrew Wiltsey, um, high level black belt competitor had a good video the other day where he's talking about things to know before your first tournament. And one of the big things is just the mental game that your mind tricks on you where nobody else cares or thinks about your losses at all. All anybody else remembers is the exciting matches you won, you know? But in your mind, you know, you come home from a day like that where, you know, I've seen the video, it's a beautiful rolling sweep into the north-south choke. And, you know, you're maybe, uh, your, your brain is naturally fixated on the other two matches that didn't go your way. And so you really got to, you know, work to get yourself out of that mental loop. Yeah, and that mental loop is tough too. And especially, you know, as an amputee, and then I'm bald and I have a beard. I did not serve in the military once in my life. But on a daily basis, if I'm out in public doing things, I get a thank you for your service. And I got a, hey, I didn't serve, you know. But then even still at the jujitsu competition, I have so many people uh, that'll come up and, oh, man, that's awesome. Oh, I saw you compete. That's so cool. And some little kid looking at your leg and whatnot. And sometimes in the moment, 
that all just, for lack of better, annoys me. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, what are you talking about? Did you just watch that match? I spent the whole thing in bottom side and couldn't get out. Like that was nothing Mm -hmm. about that was cool. And it's not until like, you know, days later when I can try and reflect on the situation that I'm like, Oh no, that is cool. You know what I mean? Like I did put myself out there no different than everybody else. You know, they're putting themselves out there. It's still, but there is a hurdle that I had to jump over and I should be proud of myself for jumping over that hurdle. Sometimes it's hard to do so, but no one's, like you said, no one's looking at the negative aspects of anything, whether you're able-bodied or not there. It's just a matter of you're there. Everybody's in that same boat, you know? So you got to just get over yourself and (laughs) that's really it. Get over yourself, you know? For sure. And looking on your Instagram and YouTube, uh, you do a bunch of other active stuff. I see videos of you snowboarding on a prosthetic, deadlifting, like insane amount of weight that any person with two legs would have a lot of trouble getting up. Um, how do you stay active in, in those activities? That's it. it. It's just a matter of I have to keep myself going because, you know, I talked about that 10 minutes to feel bad for yourself. My My toughest 10 minutes and when I feel bad for myself are in the morning. I tell everybody this. I wake up, everybody's first thing they have to do when they wake up, go to the bathroom, you know, all that. I have that first 10 minutes of the day where it's like, okay, I have to go to the bathroom. I have to get on crutches and go to the bathroom. And so that like wakes you up. That's a nuisance. It's not like, you you know, some of us, when you have two legs, you can just, sometimes you do that, like kind of, I'm still asleep walk and you try and hold on to that sleep for when you get back in bed and knock right out. Walking on crutches and all that, it kind of wakes you up. So then I have to make the decision, okay, do I strap on this leg, which is a nuisance and uncomfortable. And then, you know, basically the relaxing portion of your day is over. Now you're in to get the day going. Or do I give into this feeling of this sucks, feel bad for yourself, go sit in bed. So if I didn't have something that was driving me, I fall into those same bad habits. And it was, you know, once I got back to work full time, fell into the bad habits, was eating, drinking, not doing anything, then found CrossFit. Okay, there's my drive. Got into a great spot, had my staph infection, put on crutches, can't do the things I was doing, fell right into the same tendencies. I found sled hockey. It was an awesome driver and I loved it and loved the people I met, but it didn't have that same push. Then jujitsu came along and it was that driver. And so it's really a matter of, I do these things to stay active because I enjoy being active and it's so, it's so easy to forget you enjoy being active because it's easier to sit around. Even if sitting around, you don't enjoy as much as going to the mountain and going snowboarding. And so that was kind of the same thing, even in my most uh, positive states when I was on the right path, the winter would come around and I'm in Massachusetts. There's ice on the ground all the time. <laughs> Any amputee will tell you this walking on ice is the worst thing I'll do. Whatever you need with my leg, I'll walk 20 miles before I walk a mile on ice because you can't feel where your foot's planting on the ice. You slip all that. So the winners became, I just on a smaller scale was resorting back to those same bad tendencies. And so I snowboarded in high school, big adaptive snowboard community. Okay. I'm going to try and get after this. And right away, it was the same love I had for snowboarding when I was in high school. 
that love stopped when I was in high school because I broke my back, had to stop snowboarding, all that. So luckily I found that love again and it helped me get through the winters and do all of that. And so it's really just about having, uh, you know, a why. And, you know, my whys are my wife, my stepdaughter, you know, all those things. But prior to that, I had to find otherwise. And luckily, you know, I have those and they're still a major part of my life. And what keeps me able to stay active to play with my stepdaughter. I want to take her to the mountain and go snowboarding. She's just, she's four years old, just showed interest in jujitsu. So I'm fired up, hoping to get her in kids classes, you know? So it's, you got to have a why, even if it's a small scale thing of, I want to be able to go to the mountain and snowboard because of my back injury. I had all sorts of problems with my lower back still, and then losing my leg, my back was just, getting to uh, absolute despair. And I finally was like, I'm taking my health serious, went to a bunch of different doctors, physical therapy, everything like that. And it's been a long process. I've been fo focusing on like my physical health seriously for like four years now. And just maybe it was a two year process just to get my back feeling good. But the reason I wanted my back to feel good was because when I go snowboarding, I wear a special leg, kills my back to walk with it but the riding itself is easy. I was not going snowboarding because my back was hurting so much just from walking to the lift. Well, that right there is just, you should, it should be a giant red light that, okay, address these issues, but it wasn't. And it wasn't until I really put together that you have to have that driver, that snowboarding or whatever it may be to get you to do the other things. And that's really just what I've found you know, with everything, it's if I have a, a goal in mind, that's what drives every action of your entire life, you know, and it's it's been beneficial for me, at least. How has uh, having your stepdaughter in your life impacted kind of that drive? It's it's fantastic. I mean, just between my wife and stepdaughter, it you don't want to be the lazy guy. You know what I mean? I still fall into that trend sometimes. And that's because I got a loving wife who takes care of me. And when I'm feeling bad and my legs hurt and she, you know, I don't have to worry. And sometimes I'm sure I take advantage of that, you know, but it's, I want to be a, a role model for my stepdaughter. I want her to see that I can wake up and do all these things because when she's 10 years old, it's just going to be ingrained in her that there's nothing that should stop you that no matter what life kind of throws at you roll with the punch and keep on moving forward because you're going to be fine and that's like i feel fortunate that if i can do a good job of putting on a that display of you know being able to keep moving forward and show up every day if i can do those things that when she's 10 years old that's going to be part of her mentality without even knowing, you know, you can take a 13 year old kid and take him to the motivational speaker that comes down to the gym. And out of the thousand kids at the school that are hearing this guy talk, it might sink in for five of them, you know, and that's great. But at least this way, it's like, no, she's just going to know that there's, there's not these excuses laid out, you know, and there's not these things to, you know, you're, and I don't want to say you're allowed to feel bad for yourself and you're allowed to have all these feelings and struggles and admit the struggles and all that. It's just a matter of, you still gotta, you still gotta step forward. We still gotta learn to walk, you know?
Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's something we talked about a bunch with my kids. Just, hey, these feelings are okay to have. It's what you do with them and where you take them, you know, is the important part. That's it. You got such an incredible, inspiring story, man. Like we were all watching your videos at the office when you first tagged us in them and just everybody was cheering, cheering you on in the tournaments. It was really incredible to watch. So thank you for sharing it. I wanted to wrap up with any advice you might have for that new person who's thinking about going to try their first jujitsu class, or is maybe a one or two stripe white belt still trying to kind of find their way around. Yeah. So my advice there would be, uh, so first off, I actually have a tattoo on my arm. It says FTTS. I got it very shortly after my accident mantra. My brother, Joe, uh, always said to me, and it's uh, fight through the suck. <laughs> so first and foremost, even like I said, the second time around where jujitsu clicked for me right away, where, you know, I was passionate and wanted to go. It's still, there's a lot of suck in there. Get through the suck and don't be afraid to admit the suck. I early on would push through rolling sessions until I was tapping in a no tap situation and jumping off the mat to go puke in a trash can. You don't need to get to that point. It's okay to be like, Hey, for these first few weeks, I'll go through our drilling. I'll do a little bit of live rolling. And when my body's had enough, I'll scale back and say, Hey, I'm going to watch these next few. If you're at a gym that they're not okay with that, it's probably not a good spot to be, at least in my opinion, because really it's a matter of take the failures, take all the struggle and enjoy it because the, the journey is so enjoyable and there's other white belts in your class or there's other people who just started at first trial and everything like that. Go to multiple classes early on, go to different time slots, find the group that you mesh with, find the guys that you work well with, because I got a group of guys in my morning class and they all know who they are, uh, that I know that I can work through anything with them. Hey, what are you thinking? And we're all going to get through this together. And we came from white to blue and I'm praying they're with me all the way through this journey because that's what makes it enjoyable. So Take all that struggle, all that suck, all that anxiety and find the positive in it that all of these people at the gym have felt that exact same thing. Awesome advice. Well said, Dan. Thanks for sharing your story and coming on the podcast. Cole, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, man. Appreciate it.